Welcome to Biblical Foundations, podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Welcome back to the Biblical Foundations podcast. We begin our fifth season with today's episode, and it's hard to believe that four seasons have already gone by since starting this podcast. And we're so grateful for the ongoing support of our listeners, and we pray that these next few seasons and episodes will not only engage your minds, but your hearts also as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. This fall, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger is walking us through the first nine chapters of John's Gospel. These episodes originally come from a series of lectures given by Dr. Kostenberger at the For the Church workshops here at Midwestern Seminary. And in this first episode, Dr. Kostenberger asks the question, who wrote the fourth gospel? He looks at both internal and external evidence to examine this question and concludes that, in fact, John the Apostle the son of Zebedee, is the beloved disciple who penned the capstone of the four Gospels. So listen in now to the first episode, Who Wrote the Fourth Gospel? Well, good morning. I'm excited to be part of all that God is doing here at Midwestern uh, and to lead the first ever for the church workshop. Uh, thank you for joining me today as we set out on a journey to explore the theology of John, especially in his gospel. I love the gospel of John because John is profoundly theological and has such a deep grasp of who Jesus is. When we talk about John's theology and we, when we talk about John's gospel, this raises the important questions. Who was John and what was his relationship with Jesus? My privilege today to deliver three lectures on the Gospel of John. In my first message, I'll be discussing the authorship of John's Gospel and John's prologue, the first 18 verses of the Gospel. And lectures two and three will be devoted to a close study of the so-called Cana cycle, chapters two to four, which includes Jesus' initial sign, the turning of uh, water into wine, as well as the temple cleansing, his conversations with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, and the healing of the Gentile centurion's son. I'm firmly committed to the importance of introductory matters for the study of a given book of Scripture, authorship, date, provenance, destination, occasion, and purpose. Uh, see the cradle across in the crown where I wrote the chapter on John's Gospel. That's not merely something you determine and then leave behind as you go on to study the pass a passage in a given book. Rather, as you try to discern the authorial intent underlying that passage, you need to constantly keep in mind who the author was. It's also important to use a sound hermeneutical method. In my three lectures today, I'm presupposing what I call the hermeneutical triad, that is, looking at the interpretation of a given book, in our case, John's Gospel, through the trifocal lens of history, literature, and theology. See my book, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation. In each case, we'll try to keep in mind any relevant historical, cultural background issues, 
We'll also be mindful of literary devices such as chiasm or inclusio and narrative features such as plot or characterization. When it comes to theology, we'll try to discern any Old Testament usage, whether by way of direct quotation, allusion, or typology, and we'll remember throughout that John is the spiritual gospel, that is, focuses primarily on Christology, the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah and Son of God, in keeping with John's purpose statement. My hope in these lectures is to help you build a solid foundation as you study, preach, or teach John's gospel, and by extension, even other books of the Bible. Even though we'll only be able to cover the first four chapters, I'll try to model sound exegesis and hermeneutics in breaking down the gospel unit by unit and to discern the central message in each unit within the scope of the entire gospel, interpreting the parts in light of a whole. In this way, I hope you'll be thoroughly equipped to communicate the amazing spiritual truths contained in John's gospel to your audience. So then, let's first turn our attention to the question of who wrote John's gospel. There are many scholars today, critical scholars, who don't believe the Apostle John wrote the gospel that bears his name. Some believe that another person named John, perhaps one commonly called John the Elder, wrote the gospel. Others believe that a so-called Johannine community that traced its roots to the apostle wrote the gospel sometime after John's death. Yet others say someone else wrote the gospel, such as Lazarus. I believe this is not merely an academic squabble. It's very important to determine who the author of John's gospel is and what his relationship to Jesus is because the credibility of a given writing depends to a great deal on the credibility of the author. If the apostle John wrote the gospel, given that he was one of the 12 apostles, in fact, one of only three in Jesus' inner circle, He would wield incredible authority and be one of the most important eyewitnesses of Jesus. If, on the other hand, the gospel had been written by a community based on some Johannine traditions after John the Apostle had already died, the connection would be a lot more indirect, and the gospel would therefore be less credible and authoritative. At best, it would reflect indirect rather than direct eyewitness testimony. At worst, as J. Louis Martin, Raymond Brown, and others have argued, it would essentially project the history of such a Johannine community onto the life and times of Jesus. So the authority of John's gospel hinges to a significant extent on the question of who its author is. How then do we go about determining who the author of John's gospel was? There are two main avenues, internal and external evidence. Sometimes people start with the external evidence, that is, to whom the authorship of John's gospel was attributed in the early centuries of the church. But I prefer to start with the internal evidence, that is, internal clues as to who the gospel itself claims wrote it. I'll tell you why a little bit later. So uh, let's start there. Let's start with the internal evidence. Formally, like all the Gospels, 
John's gospel is anonymous. That is, unlike any of the New Testament letters, he doesn't start out by saying, for example, I, the apostle John, wrote this gospel. That's because a gospel is not person-to-person or person-to-group communication like an epistle, but as Richard Bauckham and others have argued in the Gospels for All Christians, uh, Gospels are universal documents that set forth the story of Jesus more broadly to a wider reading public. Nevertheless, when we investigate John's Gospel as to clues regarding its authorship, we find several important internal pieces of information. To begin with, we notice several references to a person called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He first appears in the upper room where we read one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Later, the same disciple called another disciple reappears at the high priest's courtyard after Jesus' arrest, at the scene of the crucifixion, and at the empty tomb. The final set of references is at Jesus' third and last resurrection appearance to his disciples in chapter 21, and finally, Jesus' conversation with him and Peter about their respective future callings. And then the clincher in the next to last verse of a gospel, and I quote, this is the disciple who is bearing a witness, bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So here we're told, first in the third person and then in the first person plural, that the disciple whom Jesus loved and the author of the gospel, the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, are in fact one and the same. The gospel closes with a, for a gospel, highly unusual first person reference. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In a scholarly article, I've investigated similar references in ancient literature and concluded that this is uh, a phrase indicating authorial modesty on John's part, I suppose. So the internal evidence from the gospel itself indicates that it was written by a disciple who was at Jesus' side at the Last Supper and hence one of the twelve, 12 apostles, who was at the scene of Jesus' arrest and trial, and who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion and saw Jesus following his resurrection. What an incredible claim the gospel stakes regarding its author. To sit at either side of Jesus at the Last Supper would have been places of honor reserved for the two closest associates of Jesus. If you were to compare this to, say, the biography of a U.S. president or another important uh, individual, John's gospel would be the equivalent to have been written by the president's chief of staff or closest confidant or another trusted advisor who was by his side at all the major junctures of his presidency, as opposed to, say, having been written by a journalist who knows about such events only through secondhand sources or hearsay. There are a few other interesting pieces of information as far as the internal evidence is concerned. One fascinating datum relates to the number of passages in John's gospel where the disciple whom Jesus loved appears in close conjunction with the apostle Peter. As a matter of fact, virtually every time where the disciple whom Jesus loved is mentioned in the second half of John's gospel, there Peter is as well. Both are present in the upper room. When Peter asked the disciple whom Jesus loved to inquire regarding the identity of the betrayer, 
Both are there in the high priest's courtyard. In fact, it is the disciple whom Jesus loved who gives Peter access as he's acquainted with the high priestly family. Both are also found at the empty tomb following Jesus' resurrection. In fact, they both run there together, though the disciple whom Jesus loved, who apparently was the younger of the two, outran Peter. But then he respectfully waits for Peter and allows him to peer into the tomb first, before he too looks inside and sees that the tomb is empty. Both are there at the Sea of Galilee, where they see the risen Jesus at the shore, and it is only when the disciple whom Jesus loves exclaims, It's the Lord! that Peter jumps into the lake and swims excitedly toward Jesus. Finally, as mentioned, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved are featured alongside each other in Jesus' final conversation with both of them at the very end of the gospel. Why this consistent parallel characterization of Peter and the disciple Jesus loved? And who is the person who best fits this description historically? The best answer to both questions is that the person who is most closely connected to Peter according to the witness of the other Gospels as well as the book of Acts and even Paul's writings is the Apostle John. John and Peter together with John's brother James make up the inner circle of three who alone witness the raising of Jairus' daughter, who alone accompany Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration and who alone are taken with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the book of Acts, we see Peter and John together go to the temple at the hour of prayer in chapter 3, both witness to the Sanhedrin in chapter 4, and both are in chapter 8, shown to travel together to Samaria to certify the genuineness of Samaritan conversions there. And finally, in Galatians 2.9, Paul calls James the half-brother of Jesus, as well as Peter, who's called Cephas, as well as John, the pillars of the church. So we see that Peter and John are linked closely in the other Gospels and the book of Acts, and even in Paul's first letter, letter to the Galatians. There can, therefore, be little doubt that when Peter is linked consistently in the fourth gospel with the disciple whom Jesus loved, that disciple is none other than the apostle John. So we've seen that the internal evidence of John's gospel decisively and unmistakably points to the apostle John as its author. But why does the author, John, use the unusual phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, to identify himself? There are probably multiple reasons, not the least of them being that he does so to avoid confusion, since there's already another person named John featured in this gospel, uh, John the Baptist. By calling himself simply the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author reserves the name John in this gospel exclusively for the Baptist. Thus, when the Baptist is first introduced in the gospel, the author simply writes, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. John 1.6. The same phenomenon can be observed, by the way, with regard to another common name, the name Mary in the Gospel of John. In fact, Richard Bauckham, who's engaged in an extensive study of personal names in first century Palestine, conjectures that up to 50% of all girls at that time may have been named Mary. Very common name. Yet while it was widely known, Jesus' mother's name was Mary, 
In John's gospel, she's never called by that name, but simply referred to as the mother of Jesus, such as in chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. In this way, the name Mary is in John's gospel reserved for Mary Magdalene, to whom the author usually refers to simply as Mary. For example, chapter 20, verses 11 and 16. In addition, the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, expresses the important truth that John knew himself to be deeply loved by Jesus in keeping with his theology and ethic of love, which can be seen not only at the foot washing, but also in John's signature verse, John 3.16, God so loved the world. The most important truth John believed in relation to Jesus was that he was an undeserving recipient of his redeeming love. I could go on, but hopefully you'll agree that the internal evidence points unequivocally to the Apostle John as the author of the gospel. So let's now turn for a moment uh, more briefly to the external evidence. I've started with the internal evidence and have surveyed it at some length because I believe the internal evidence is in some ways more important and decisive than the external evidence in that it is embedded in the canonical, inspired, and an errant text of the gospel itself. Nevertheless, the external evidence carries some weight as well. And as we'll see in the present case, the internal and external evidence converge. Perhaps the first external piece of evidence I should mention is the title, The Gospel According to John. Of course, this could refer to John other than the apostle, but this is highly unlikely since there's no other John mentioned in any of the Gospels or ancient literature who had anywhere near the stature of the apostle John, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the twelve. Then second, we see that virtually all the early church fathers referred to the apostle John as the author of the Gospel. For example, Irenaeus of Lyon, um, wrote in the middle of the second century, wrote, John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned back on his breast, published the gospel while he was a resident at Ephesus in Asia. So we see that Irenaeus linked the authorship of John's gospel directly to the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's mentioned in John 13, 23 as being at the Lord's Supper. So we see that the earliest church fathers, who in some cases had a direct connection with the Apostle John, for example, Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, who in turn was a student of John, uh, attributed the gospel to him as the author. In fact, it was only in the late 18th century that a small group of scholars first began to question the apostolic authorship of John's gospel. When I was a PhD student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the early 1990s, I wrote a detailed study entitled, Early Doubts of the Apostolic Authorship of the Fourth Gospel in the History of Modern Biblical Criticism, which was published first in German in the European Journal of Theology and subsequently in English in a collected essays volume, Studies in John and Gender. In that study, I investigated works written between 1790 and 1810, which questioned apostolic Johannan authorship. What I found was that many of these doubts were not well supported by the historical evidence at all, and often based on doubtful philosophical, theological, or ideological presuppositions. 
In each case, defenders of apostolic authorship quickly arose, who ably refuted all the arguments advanced against apostolic authorship. Nevertheless, today, scholars who believe that the Apostle John wrote the Gospels are in the minority. Not, I believe, because the historical evidence is lacking, but because critical scholarship has turned out to be increasingly biased against traditional scholar, uh, authorship of the Gospels and the New Testament letters as part of a reaction against the established church and an antipathy toward taking Scripture at face value. You can read more about that in chapter 1 of The Cradle, Cross, and the Crown, uh, as well as in my Johannine Theology, a Theology of John's Gospel and Letters. In my work on John's Gospel over the years, I've interacted extensively with scholars who dispute the apostolic authorship of John's Gospel, such as Martin Hengel, Richard Bauckham, Ben Witherington, Robert Kaiser, and many others. Martin Hengel, a leading German New Testament scholar and historian, speaks of a Johannine Doppelantlitz, that is, a dual face of John's gospel. By this, he acknowledges that the internal evidence, as we've seen, points in the direction of apostolic authorship, but then goes on to argue that while the author wants his readers to believe that the apostle John wrote the gospel, he didn't in fact write it. Rather, Hengel argues that the actual author of the gospel was the nebulous figure of a John the Elder, of whom virtually nothing is known other than a passing reference in one of the church father Papias's writings, which is now lost, but has come down to us in the writings of the church historian Eusebius. Richard Bauckham, similarly, while defending the eyewitness nature of the biblical gospels in general, in his important book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, at the same time, somewhat inexplicably, denies both Matthean and Johannine authorship. Similar to Hengel, Bauckham believes a member of the Jerusalem aristocracy, perhaps the host of the Last Supper, a man by the name of John, perhaps John the Elder, wrote the gospel. Ben Witherington, a prolific Wesleyan scholar who teaches at Asbury Seminary, believes Lazarus wrote the gospel, wrote a blog, was Lazarus the beloved disciple, while others, as mentioned, posit an anonymous Johannine community. Interestingly, though, some adherents of the Johannine community hypothesis, such as Robert Kaiser, have changed their mind and now advocate a postmodern reading of the gospel. Why this almost inexplicable aversion to apostolic authorship, even by otherwise competent historians, such as Hengel or Bauckham? It seems that there are some underlying presuppositions at work here that preclude apostolic authorship at the very outset without adequate consideration being given to the actual historical evidence for apostolic authorship both internal and external, which I've briefly sketched above. Apostolic authorship is typically ruled out at the very outset as a possible option. No wonder that such critical scholars arrive at the conclusion that someone other than the Apostle John wrote the gospel. Sadly, it is virtually impossible in today's intellectual climate to hold to apostolic Johannian authorship and to be respected and accepted by mainstream academic scholarship. 
And incidentally, there are a few fascinating paragraphs on this in Leon Morris's excellent, now out of print volume, Studies in the Fourth Gospel, where he voices similar concerns. You can read up on this in an essay I've written on Leon Morris's contribution to Johannian scholarship in a recent volume entitled The Gospel of John in Modern Interpretation in a new series called Milestones in New Testament Scholarship. But then to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, it is a small thing to be rejected by mainstream academia. The only thing that matters in the end is that we're approved by God as those who accurately handle his word of truth. Hopefully I've proven sufficiently and beyond reasonable doubt uh, for our purposes that the Apostle John wrote the gospel that bears his name. This will be an important foundation for the rest of our time together for the following three reasons. First, it will clarify what we're talking about when we speak of John's theology. We're talking about the theology of the Apostle John who was the closest eyewitness to Jesus during his earthly ministry. Second, a strong belief in apostolic Johanna and authorship will prove us with a, uh, provide us with a strong positive conviction as to the authority, accuracy, and reliability of John's witness, especially in the gospel that highly prizes eyewitness testimony. And third, we have a strong basis for affirming that the theology conveyed in John's gospel is coherent and flows out of intimate, personal acquaintance with its main subject, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the experience of following him closely in discipleship. While some would consider this a liability and allege that any personal commitment to the subject of one's work automatically results in bias and inaccuracy, I would disagree. It is very possible to be strongly invested in the subject and to be passionate about it, and yet, precisely because one is passionate about a subject, to be committed to accurate reporting. To the contrary, if anyone is detached and dispassionate in their writing and thinking about a person like Jesus, who stakes such astonishing claims regarding himself, it makes me wonder if they really understand who he claimed to be and how earth-shattering the significance of his coming is. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations Podcast.